podcast about 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And today I am joined by a special guest co-host. I think a few of you guys know her, especially if if you are in our Facebook group. Shall I call you Dr. Eleanor Russ? Do you keep the doctor on the DL? Um, it's pretty on the DL. Yeah. It's on the you DL. Can just call me Eleanor. Yeah. Eleanor, Eleanor <laughs> Rust. Why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, Eleanor? Well, these days I am a marketing professional at a PR firm for music technology, but in my spare time, I'm a fan and amateur of 19th century British literature studies. Um, just a little background, I started reading Jane Austen really in response to the flood of 1990s TV and film adaptations, mm. uh, and Austen novels really became my favorite escape while I was in a PhD program in Latin and ancient Greek literature, and that was in the 2000s. So that's why I earned the doctor, but um, mm-hmm. I don't really use it anymore. I left academia, and I was feeling pretty burnt out on my field of study and on a lot of the academic gatekeeping, but I still had this reading and researching itch to scratch. And that's when I threw into myself into reading Austin in more depth, not so much for the escapism, but more to like really understand why it was so amazing. Mm-hmm. And that drew me to explore contemporaries like Fanny Burney and Mariah Edgeworth and heirs like the Brontes, although I am still team Austin. I have to say. That's all right. That's fine. So I started a blog project about women's accomplishments in Jane Austen's time. And I dove into letter writing, especially deeply, all of the skills uh, that uh, made genteel women um, uh, considered accomplished, uh, like they talk about Mm -hmm. in Pride and Prejudice. And eventually all of that led me to join JASNA, the Jane Austen Society of North America. And I started creating costumes to go to the Kentucky Jane Austen Festival every year. And that led me to find Bonnets at Dawn. And I wanna shout out to the Kentucky Bonnets, Amanda Beverly and Mary Landrum for uh, planting that seed telling me I should listen um and so yeah so um I uh so so since leaving academia and doing all these things um I've really found that reading for pleasure at the same time as reading for like history and literary criticism is it's just that like that sweet spot that I love and that's that's what I love about Bonnet to Dawn oh I'm so glad you're here yeah thank you I'm glad to be here I am also surprised that you haven't been like making costumes forever because you're <laughs> have, really, really good oh, at thank it. Thank you. I've made some. So in my um, uh, before grad school, it kind of some during, I was doing some medieval reenactment okay. costuming. Um, so, but it was it was this whole Jane Austen, Jane Austen community that drew me to to try try the early nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. And um, and I might branch out. I'm I'm working on some 18th century clothes right now too. If you want to plug, so people uh, can see these clothes. Sure. Well, let's see. My Instagram is at Swellenora. I'm kind of taking a hiatus right now. Um, Swellenora, um, sort of nickname for Eleanor. Um, and then, cute. thank you. And then uh, I still have a whole bunch of letter writing stuff on my blog, which I have not updated for quite a while, but I'm still proud of the things I did. Mm-hmm. It's called Her Reputation for Accomplishment at WordPress.com. All right. Um, and uh, so there's a lot about letter writing and Valentine's and um, women's accomplishments there. And someday I might revive it. It was a lot of fun. 
That's super cool. What would your like accomplishment be if you were um, at that time? Well, I tried a lot of things. And although I don't know if I'm not very good at it, I really enjoyed watercolor painting. Um, there are some surviving examples of just kind of ordinary women, not, not, you know, professional artists, but women doc- mm-hmm. just documenting their lives through, through watercolor painting. And that totally captivated me. It really seemed to make Jane Austen novels come to life. That um, mm-hmm. there's particularly an artist named Diana Sperling. She was just drawing what her family was up to their, their, their fun and games and kind of, you know, mishaps and shenanigans. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, so I like to, I, I did a few drawings at the Jane Austen festival in Kentucky, kind of trying to imitate a little bit of that. That was super fun. Oh, that's super cool. I'm sure all of you have read it by now, but warning, there's going to be spoilers for the Blue Castle for this miniseries, okay? So if you haven't read it, I do suggest, you know, you can head over to Project Gutenberg. You can read it for free. It's a very quick read. I don't know, Eleanor. I don't know how fast you went through oh, it. Oh, yeah. But... I couldn't stop myself. Um, I know we were supposed to sort of read it in two chunks, but um, I just couldn't stop at 15. I had to keep going. Yeah. It's a, it's a page turner. It's a page turner. It took me, like, I kind of tried to slow down because I was taking notes in between, mm-hmm. but I mean... I think I did it in two days. Oh, wow. Tops. Yeah. Tops. Yeah. So it's quick read, guys. Um, so how this read along will go, which is, you know, quite a bit like all of our other read alongs each week, we're going to discuss a set of chapters. We will have a guest interview and then we will go over listener comments. And there are some bangers. Really good ones. Yeah. Really, really good. You guys had so many good comments. It's always hard to choose. So. This week, we are discussing chapters 1 through 15. And because Hannah is not with us, you're not going to get a real big play-by-play. These are Lauren summaries. So these are very <laughs> short summaries. <laughs> sorry, but also not sorry, because there's so much to discuss. Okay. Yeah. So here's a very quick summary of the first 15 chapters of this book. So we meet Valency Sterling, a 29-year-old spinster, on the morning of her aunt and uncle's anniversary picnic, and it's raining, so it's canceled, which is actually a good thing because Valency is miserable and her family is pretty miserable to be around, especially her mother and I believe her mother's cousin Stickles, so I think second cousin for her. Sadly, she lives with both of them in a very oppressive environment. Valency isn't allowed many pleasures in life. She's not allowed to read novels because they are too silly. So I always like tracking that because Mm -hmm. that happens quite a bit for us on this show. But she is allowed to read nature books by this guy named John Foster. And she indulges in this sort of rich fantasy life in her, in her mind, in her blue castle. Valency has been having these dizzy spells and a pain around her heart. And on her birthday, she decides that's when she's going to go visit Dr. Trent. And then just as he's about to diagnose her, he gets a phone call and he's got to leave. He just runs. It's it's so dramatic. It's so dramatic. (laughs) And it's like at the end of a chapter and it was like 2 Mm a.m. when I was reading it. And I was like, well, now I have to keep going because what? (laughs) And I was like, when are we going to figure out what the heck happened there? Because it takes like a couple more chapters before she actually hears back from him. So Mm -hmm. what's actually really interesting is as she's leaving that appointment, as she's walking home, she decides to cut through Lover's Lane. And that's where she sees the town bad boy. 
And that's when she begins like fantasizing about him. Suddenly he becomes like the guy in the blue castle, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not really sure if I can decide if that's the moment where Valency really becomes unchained, if you will, or if it's the next morning when she starts just hacking away at a rose bush that has never bloomed. And um, I'm a gardener, so I was like, "Well, that that rose bush is gonna bloom. We got some. We have a metaphor going on here." <laughs> or, or does the book really kick off when she gets the letter from the doctor who confirms this fear that you know she is in fact dying and she only has one year to live if she's lucky? Um, and that's when Valency like stops going to church. She tells her relatives exactly what she thinks of them, which is very interesting in my, you know, my favorite dinner scene ever. Um, she also strikes up a friendship with Roaring Abel, the town drunk, according to her family, right? This is how her family sees them. And then to cap things off, she moves in with Roaring Abel to help him take care of his daughter who is dying. And uh, she begins work as a housekeeper. So yeah, so that's pretty much what happens in those yeah, but first chapters. But Ellen Montgomery packs in so much mm-hmm. in that, like the plot is very simple, but there's a lot of Valency's life that's communicated during yes. those chapters. I think this only takes place over maybe a week or, or yeah. two. Yeah, it's not a long time yeah. period. Yeah, but we hear a lot about um, Valency's life story um, as minor as it is um, before things kick off. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So yeah. what are your so, general, this is your first time reading it, I want to say. Yes, first. yes. Yeah. I, first time for this for this podcast. So I was, um, I was trying to contextualize what 29 means for mm-hmm. an Ellen Montgomery character. And so I was thinking about uh, Anne Shirley. Anne of Green Gables um, is really my you know, one of my gateway books, something I read when I was a kid and have read, reread a few times. Um, and so Anne Shirley in Anne's House of Dreams is about 26. And that is the last Anne of Green Gables novel at the time when the Blue Castle was published in 1926. Mm-hmm. So really Valency is older than Anne Shirley when Anne Shirley's story is over. Mm-hmm. Her romantic, Anne's romantic journey is over by 26. Um, and um, Ellen Montgomery isn't going to pick up the Anne story again until 1939, yeah. uh, when she talks, starts writing more about Anne as a mother and really is focusing a little more on Anne's um on Anne's children and mm-hmm. and how and how they're moving through life. So at an age where Anne's entire romantic journey has drawn to a close, Valency hasn't even started. And she says that she can't remember a single crimson or purple spot anywhere in her life. Yeah, just been gray yeah. up until now. Mm-hmm. And um, gray is, is like a, a gray and brown are the colors that we really hear about in these first chapters Mm -hmm. that first chapter especially oh my gosh it is bleak yeah she she describes all the objects in her room and they are old or they are drab or they are colorless or they're ugly Mm -hmm. and um this quote just made me cry the only thing valency liked about her room was that she could be alone there at night to cry if she wanted to yeah it's dark. 
just so in that dark. that terrible room with that potpourri, which I will never the forget. Potpourri. That like just yes. old, gross potpourri. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is that is a great image. The potpourri, like the the mm-hmm. the scentless but disgusting sort mm-hmm. of. Later, she calls it the smell of dead things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but in addition to, to looking over the room and how awful it is and how little she likes about it, she's doing this mental survey of her family. And so even though that picnic is canceled, like she knows the rain is going to make the picnic not happen. Mm-hmm. She imagines everything her family is going to say to her at the picnic. Yeah. So they're not even there. And their voices are loud in her head, mm-hmm. even louder than her own voice. And the picnic, she's like spared the picnic, but she can't spare herself the experience of being squelched by them and mocked by them um, to be kind of the butt of these dad jokes, frankly, Mm -hmm. dad jokes about single women. That's kind of her Uncle Benjamin's thing. Bad dad jokes about old mates. Yes. And, you know, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think this is another place where Montgomery sort of like excels as a writer, because I think maybe the first instinct for me would be like, let's start at this picnic and it's Mm -hmm. miserable and you're right there Mm -hmm. with the family. But she does something more sophisticated, which is like she has Valency imagining all of this to show us how deeply these people have gotten underneath her skin, how they're living in her head rent free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She it's you can you can see her anticipating the the pain and Mm -hmm. like annoyance and um, and she's you can see that she's organized her life around trying to avoid triggering what's going to happen. She's made she's really shrunk herself around them. Um, She's really she's doing the work of, of of like oppression for them. Yes, that oppressive environment, that oppressive environment, it's like in her head as well Mm -hmm. as in the house. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that kind of um, that kind of help, like there's a there's a real sense of hopelessness and helplessness that she's not even allowed to change her hair. Mm -hmm. Um, She's wearing her hair the same way she did when as when she sort of came out into society as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh it's hard to tell if she'd be punished for wearing her differently, but like her aunt told her that that's the only way that would work for her. Yeah. And she just kind of has dressed her hair the same way ever since. Um, Even though now that's, I think they say 13 years after she first sort of, you know, started going out to, to parties Mm -hmm. as much as she ever did. And she's just like a woman stuck in time with her clothes in her hair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so all of that, all of that is taking place before she even leaves her bedroom in the morning. Yeah. On this rainy day. Um, but then at um, we do start seeing the family members when she comes down to breakfast with her mother and with cousin Stickles. Um, and there's this line that I loved where she said, it said, Valency talked to her mother and cousin Stickles of the things they always talked of. She never wondered what would happen if she tried to talk of something else. She knew. Therefore, <laughs> she never did. I guess I, I understand this, this sort of feeling of um, the, like the consequences, if you really could step back and look at them, are not that bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, her mother might give her the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they would talk about, they would talk over and over again about, about how, how she, you know, how she did this thing. Um, like, 
the things she's anticipating are uh, the, the story that her uncle always tells about her stealing the jam. She mm-hmm. knows that if she does anything out of the ordinary, they will talk about talk it to death Mm -hmm. it's not a terrible consequence but something she can't escape right so it is it does it does gain the weight of something terrible for her Mm -hmm. um so we because there's all of these repeated stories these chapters give us so much about her life even though they only cover that short period yeah so it's, it's like every interaction she has with family members every place she goes to in town She's got these associations with them. She goes to the library. She remembers how the librarian acted before. Mm-hmm. She remembers all of the, the, how she's prohibited to read the novels, how people reacted if she's, uh, if she's read what she's not supposed to, mm-hmm. the way she's supposed to record every idle minute in a notebook. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what's so interesting about these this first set of chapters and also why I think it was really so heavy for a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. in the comments, because she is really swimming in that yeah. negativity, right? It's just yeah. living in her. It's breathing in yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. Her reaction to the negativity is not to rebel, but to just keep squelching herself to try mm-hmm. to survive, just to try and get through without triggering more. Mm-hmm. Of the, So instead of growing the thick skin, where she can just be like, oh, they're just going to say that. I'm just going to move on. Yeah. She's just shrunk herself and squelched herself down. Um, and so I was, I, I liked that you, in your summary, you're saying you weren't sure when it actually, when is she actually unclenched? When yeah. does she really, because there's a, it, it, it's, um, when I was kind of rereading a little bit again um, to make these notes, I was, it, I was, I agree that it's like, there's like a, there's a big moment when she gets that diagnosis, but there's some other moments leading up mm-hmm. to that where she starts to see some things that she maybe didn't notice before. And one thing I noticed was her, was how envy plays into it. Um, mm. And I love that because I feel like uh, it's not a novel heroine thing to admit that you have envy. Totally. Right? That feels like something that um, is pretty unusual that, that you'd, 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 write a heroine who acknowledges that she's envy and actually helps it spur her transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, as she's walking down the street to, uh, to go to the library um, and to her uncle's shop where she's going to, you know, experience the dad jokes again. Um, as she's walking down the street, she sees this nice new house and she's jealous of the bride to be who's going to get to live there. Oh yeah. And it, she says, why did everything come to some girls and nothing to others? Um, yeah, ah. yeah. Uh, and then when she passes that bad boy on Lover's Lane, she mm-hmm. envies him. His name is Barney Snaith. It's a great <laughs> name. It sounds kind of like it could be a villain name. Totally. Um, I, 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 I was really uncertain at first whether he was going to be the villain or going to be something else. Um, so when she passes him by, he's working on his, um, on his uh, rackety car. She says, or she envied him his lightheartedness and his irresponsibility and his mysterious little cabin up on an island in Lake Mistawis, even his rackety old gray Slauson. That's the car. This outlaw was happy, whatever he was or wasn't. She, Valency Sterling, respectable, well-behaved to the last degree, was unhappy and always had been unhappy. So there you are. Yeah. Yeah. So something, something's unlocking there. It's like mm-hmm. she realizes that she realizes that everything she's tried to do is not helped. Yeah. <laughs> and I do like that. It actually, it is sort of like 
It is interesting. It starts with the envy and then it kind of is like lust. It's so, it's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so there's getting the diagnosis and then there's this chap- chapter eight is when she basically spends all night awake mm. thinking about her life. And it, she starts actually thinking about her obituary might be, which is super dark. Yes. Right? I mean, I mean, she gets this diagnosis that says that she might have a uh, spoiler alert, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She gets this diagnosis that says she might have just a year to live or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she spends this time imagining her obituary and she doesn't have much to remember. So she's, there's this, account, there's, she's recalling the things that, that, that do sort of pop up, not as bright spots, but at least sort of incidents, events mm-hmm. in her life. And they are all kind of awful. They're, yeah. They're marked by her anxiety and her unhappiness or unfairness. Mm-hmm. There's not much that's marked with a feeling of love for anybody, um, for friendship. Uh, and so the part that really stuck with me, partly because it does kind of come back later in the book, is about this dust pile. Yeah. It immediately <laughs> calls to mind Cinderella when you hear the oh, dust. Oh, yeah. Thing oh, I didn't for think me. of that. I was that's like, a great idea. Oh, I was like, yeah. oh, Cinderella, oh, the mice. Yeah. That's what I... <laughs> That's where I Absolutely. went. Absolutely. Oh, it's very fairy tale, isn't mm-hmm. it? Absolutely. So just to recap the dust pile story. Um, so when Valencia is seven, her pretty cousin Olive starts at the same school and be- immediately becomes popular. Valency mm-hmm. is, you know, just kind of a, one of the kids, but her cousin Olive always draws attention wherever she goes. So she becomes one of the popular girls. And during recess, everyone starts making dust piles one day. Um, I was, I think they were kind of at the side of the road. I was trying to visualize yeah. what this dust really is, but I know I um, was too. Yeah. Dirt, dust, something. Um, so all the other girls are building these dust piles, trying to make the biggest. And then suddenly the other girls see olives, they see that it's pretty big, and they decide they're gonna add their dust piles to olives. And the goal is now is to make the biggest pile ever. But Valency doesn't want to do that. She recalls mm-hmm. that she's not exactly jealous of Olive's big dust pile. But she yeah. wanted her own, even if it's small, she wanted her mm-hmm. own dust pile. And so when the bigger girls steal it and add it to olives, she gets upset. She tries to make another one. Um, it must kind of get blown out of proportion because her mother gets involved. Um, right. And her mother's response is that she, that valency has been selfish. Mm-hmm. And there's this heartbreaking line from sort of narrator that was the first and last time Valency had ever taken any of her troubles to her mother. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. And I just this had, it's like, it's one of these childhood stories where it, it it's not that big a drama, really, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a huge trauma. It's like, it's not like the sort of life and death um, experience, but it's like got all those big feelings of childhood, the kind of thing that yeah. sticks with you um, and makes a part of your identity, partly because it matches other things, right? It symbolizes a lot yeah. of other experiences you have. And it's, um, I felt so real. And I feel like that's another thing LMM is so good at. Yes. Um, it's, she's great in the Anne book, like capturing that, like just those huge feelings and how they stick with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that when you're eight just feel like the end of the world. Yeah. And it's <laughs> even really, if to adults they're not. Really interesting to think because, like, I feel like Anne would have the same. This this story would actually feel completely in place in an Anne of yes, Green Gables, right? Absolutely. That yeah. would actually totally work there too. Of course, mm-hmm. Anne would have a much bigger 
much more dramatic reaction. Mm-hmm. And Anne would also mm-hmm. try again. Like she'd like yeah. keep going. Yeah. But it's it's notable that here like it just cru- crushes yeah. balancing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I f- also think that for the Anne books, we'd probably have a little more resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that if this was in if this was in Anne of Green Gables, um, we'd see Anne act out and like demand justice. Yeah. So the adults in Anna Green Gables might not sympathize with, you know, the one who wants to keep her own dust pile, but they'd at least have some kind of, of lesson that would be, well, you know, you just got to get along with your friends and that right. Anne might hold on to fairness and justice, but um, it wouldn't have that same, I mean, I can't, I mean, that the line about like never taking her troubles to her mother again. Yeah, it totally broke Ooh. trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also points that like the mother never gained it back. There's no, no. way the mother really never worked on that relationship yeah. either is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I get the, I mean, I get definitely get the feeling the mother has a certain amount of that sort of narcissistic parenting kind of mm-hmm. just to get a little like pop psychology where her relationship is all about her. Yeah. Not about Valency. And actually there's another line later when Valency does start speaking up for herself um, and her mother's starting to worry, like, oh, if Valency goes to this dinner party, is she going to freak out or is it, are things yeah. going to be okay? And there's a line that says something like, um, Mrs. or, you know, Mrs. whatever they call her, um, cousin Frederick, what do they call her? Mrs. Sterling, Mrs. Frederick, because Frederick Sterling was her husband. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Frederick didn't realize it, but she had never thought about honoring Valency's humor. She'd never thought of considering what Valency wanted before. Yeah. Which was like. <laughs> whoa <laughs> yeah yeah and that yeah yeah as a parent uh, that's a crazy thing to hear really i know <laughs> um and so next episode i'm sure you'll talk about the ways in which valency finds some ways to heal the childhood wound mm-hmm. that the dust pile stands for um and i just love that 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 of all of the different moments of valency's life that really you know call up her sad story the dust pile is the one that kind of keeps going where mm-hmm. um she's she says i want a dust pile of my own i'm gonna get a dust pile of my own and eventually she even like literally builds one <laughs> <laughs> and so um she says at that point later on that this is to exercise an old demon i think we might say to heal a childhood trauma yeah 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 um but then the end so so this i feel like it's this moment at um, in the night after the diagnosis, all of these things have been leading up to a declaration of freedom. Mm-hmm. And so what she says at the end of that chapter is what luxury it will be to tell the truth. I may not be able to do much that I want to do, but I won't do another thing that I don't want to do. Yeah. Ah, uh, it's like, it's not a huge declaration of freedom, but it's so significant and, and it does change everything. Mm-hmm. It changes uh, yeah. the whole course of her life. It's wild. Yeah. Of just yeah. like, yeah, guess yeah, what? Yeah. I'm gonna like tell the truth and just do mm-hmm. what I want to mm-hmm. do. Do what I want to do. This is something. I mean, this is probably way too much information that has come up with <laughs> me in therapy quite a bit. I've like maybe even said like something very similar yeah. along those yeah. lines because I I have had my therapist ask me many times. What are you afraid is going to happen if you do what you want to do? Like, are you going to jail? Do you want to do something illegal? I think we have the same therapist. (laughs) No, I I remember, I remember a specific moment when I, when I was like, kind of like, you know, chafing against something that I was holding back from a family member and the therapist said, well, what would happen? 
what's the worst that that's, would happen? Yeah, what's going to happen? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then, you know, what Valency finds is the worst that can happen is exactly what she knew. It's the silent treatment. It's mm-hmm. the looks of horror. It's the attempts to squelch her mm-hmm. with these, you know, by belittling her. But she can survive that. Yeah. She can, yeah, it's, it, when she, yeah, um, fear comes up a lot that she's decided mm-hmm. she's not going to be afraid anymore. Um, and uh, that um, fear was really the thing that was holding her back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so the dinner part, so we do see some great, you know, moments where, where she's shocking cousin Sickles and her mother, but it really does all lead up to that dinner party. Um, and uh, it's interesting. She says she actually kind of wants to go. Yeah. She wanted, yeah. Now that now that she's she decided not to be afraid and is like living it, she does. She kind of wants to go, and she says she wanted to look over all her relatives from her new angle. It would be an excellent place to make her public her declaration of independence if occasion offered. So yes, she she's yeah, gonna yeah. make her secret. Like she's gonna open it up to everybody. Yep. I think yep. that's the thing. You do need that moment where you're like, guess what? This is my new truth. Mm-hmm. This is who I am yep. now. Yep. And yeah, and it's everybody's there. Um, they call it even a family reunion, even though it's just kind of a dinner party. Um, and so I loved that when they get to the dinner party and they're all seated, she's looking at everybody and kind of like assessing them. And now that she's not looking at them in fear, she sees how much they're motivated by fear. Each mm-hmm. one of them has different, uh, you know, unmet needs and um, different, you know, hangups um, mm-hmm. and fear is driving them um, that they are, if they're, if they're mean or bitter or um, death obsessed, yeah. uh, it comes from a place of fear. So that's another brilliant thing about that opening chapter where she's thinking about the picnic and mm-hmm. she's thinking about what they will say. Now she gets to do the same survey in their presence and see them with totally fresh eyes. Totally fresh eyes. I love what you said about fear because now she's like, oh, these yeah. people are small people. Like, yes, I shouldn't exactly. care about this yeah. at all. Yeah. And then each relative does try to squelch her or shame her in their own way. Um, there's there's like this, the, the sort of shade. There's like these... these um, um, pointed comments about about old maids who never mm-hmm. get a man there's the dad jokes that are all about old maids and how silly they are um there's the direct sort of like you know body shaming yeah yeah um, they each have their own method of doing it there's olive sort of like trying to take the her, her beautiful cousin olive trying to take the center of attention they mm-hmm. each try it in their own special passive aggressive or aggressive aggressive way um but instead now that she has those fresh eyes she just keeps telling her truth And and then walks out and then just walks out. Just walks out. (laughs) I think she has like a line about the salad dressing. Like it could use a little bit more salt, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although that's, that is then kind of like balanced by that. She actually has one of these attacks where her heart, she has a pain in her heart. Um, And uh, she, she basically leaves not in triumph, but because she wants to get away before she's incapacitated by this Mm -hmm. feeling. Um, And so yeah, all of that truth telling is definitely yeah. connected to her, her, you know, the health condition she thinks is probably gonna, gonna shorten her life. Mm-hmm. But then she says she keeps she still keeps going even after that attack. Um, it says she says it's the worst one she's ever had. But mm-hmm. um, in a sense, it seems to just solidify her resolve that she's yeah. gonna live what she has left. She's gonna live that, that time in this she- new way. 
And I love that she says it was so easy to defy once you got started. The first step was the only one that really counted. And it's it's good to bring up that line, too, because I feel in the dinner scene, what's interesting is that it's not like she's not being unnecessarily mean towards no. people either as well. She's really just like being direct. Mm-hmm. And of course, mm-hmm. they take it as an attack. Yes. They right, take the truth they, as an attack. Yeah, Right. Because they are they have that passive aggressive. I mean, they, they, there's all these family dynamics where where you I mean, I, I that somehow feels a little familiar. The um, <laughs> yeah. the sort of um, the reason she feels she has felt afraid of those things in the past is because people meant her to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if she'd grown up in a different family, she might not feel them the same way because if she grew up in a family that was direct, mm-hmm. then, you know, the, the, the little, like the little jai, the little jabs, the little like pointed comments wouldn't mean much because she'd be expecting directness, mm-hmm. but because she's grown up with that communication style, those little jabs, they really rankle, they really fester. Yeah. I, I felt like that scene was so important and just this change of mindset to like where we're at right now as well, because like, just with everything, right? Like the mm-hmm. pandemic, personally, in my life, I've been working on a lot of like diversity and inclusion committees mm-hmm. where I've just said like things like, can we stop dancing around the issue? Mm, yeah. Can we mm-hmm. actually just be direct and say what we mean? I'm not trying mm-hmm. to be mean or attack anyone. I'm mm-hmm. just trying to be open and honest because I feel mm-hmm. like we're spending so much time it takes so much energy really yeah. to pull to pull that back and try and kind of like say it in the most diplomatic way possible or mm-hmm. not say it directly it takes a lot of energy and and um and uh, the valence has been like that all her energy has gone to that yes to that dancing around and trying to deflect and and you know yeah fill fill some weird roles that the family has created for her mm-hmm. and exactly it does feel free like a um, doesn't there's a sort of a high-minded conversation topic somebody tries to start at the dinner table what is the greatest happiness and <laughs> yeah. people are saying ah for a woman the greatest happiness is to be a loved a loving and beloved wife and mother you know they're they're, they're mm-hmm. they've got their they, they make different answers but they're all kind of trying to one-up each other on virtue and then Valency just says the greatest happiness would be to sneeze when you want to yeah <laughs> Just allow me to be me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just have a, yeah, just have a body that does things and stop talking about it. Next week, another fantastic set of chapters because we we go to Roaring Abel's house and then it feels like a, a whole other set of just oh, yeah. mini dramas and stories yes, kick yes. off. And I love that after getting the perspective on Roaring Abel and Barney Snaith from the, from the family, mm-hmm. suddenly we're able to really see them from a totally different perspective yes. and see them as people instead of, instead of these weird, like um, kind of scapegoats and scare figures that the family, mm-hmm. the Sterling family, it's like, I think the Sterling family talks about Abel and Barney Snaith way more than Abel and Barney Snaith ever think about them. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I do love that you brought that up because that is brought up at the dinner table of just, Mm -hmm. yeah, they are scapegoated. They are used as examples. And Valancy's like, wait a minute. You don't even know them. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to, and we're, yeah, that's all starting chapter 16. You get to meet them all and find out what, why Roaring Abel roars. 
<laughs> exactly. What a name, Roaring Able. What a name. What a gr- if your town has given you that nickname, yes. you're doing something right. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think. So now we are going to kick it off to our interview. You will remember Dr. Kate Scarth from our literary tourism episode about Prince Edward Island, which is which is where she works, where she teaches. Dr. Kate Scarth is the chair of L.M. Montgomery Studies at UPEI University, Prince Edward Island, that is, um, where she works very closely, of course, with the L.M. Montgomery Institute and is also the assistant professor of applied communications, leadership and culture. She is particularly interested in the relationship between story and place just like me. I'm really into that. And she also works on writers from Jane Austen to Ellen Montgomery. And her current projects include Your L.M. Montgomery Story, which you can find at yourlmmontgomerystory.com. And please submit your L.M. Montgomery Story there if you haven't done so already. So what was going on in Ellen Montgomery's life when she was writing The Blue Castle? Seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I was thinking about this and it's a long list. So she's writing The Blue Castle in the mid 1920s. And of course, it's not that long after World War One, right? And the, the worldwide devastation of World War One, her beloved friend and cousin Fred Campbell died of the Spanish flu in 1919. Fred's aunt Annie Campbell, who was kind of like a mother to Montgomery, like lots of happy memories at their farm, had died in 1924. As you mentioned, Montgomery's own mental health and her health generally um, was not strong through this period. And Ewan McDonald, her husband, was really um, suffering uh, from some of his mental health crises. And of course, Montgomery's there trying to manage that. He's a minister, so he has this high standing in the community, a very public um, persona. And so she's trying to keep up appearances. Well, you know, he's just really deteriorating behind the scenes. And of course, like she's balancing all that while also being a wife, a mother, a writer, a housekeeper, like managing all of that. And then there's the legal battles with the publisher happening in this period. And then a lawsuit her husband was involved in um, because of a car crash with the Methodist minister in nearby Zephyr. Um, And then there was church union, which of course, Ewan was a Presbyterian minister. So the merging of the Presbyterian and Methodist church was very contentious. And the McDonald's were fighting that. You know, we, if you're familiar with, um, our uh, listeners are familiar with uh, the later Anne books, like Miss Cornelia's, you know, strong dislike of Methodists. You can kind of see how uh, church union was very contentious. So, yeah, there was quite a background happening, right, of a lot of challenges in Montgomery's life in this period. But I think what's so amazing about Montgomery, right, is that she takes that and like Elizabeth Waterston and Mary Rubio have talked about, she's able to transform that in her writing. Um, so she can kind of take challenges and, uh, you know, see the joy in them or, or transform them as a kind of like therapy. So, for example, Valency, unmarried at 29, a lot of similarities there to Montgomery at that age who felt like she was kind of past her sell by date or, you know, it was too late for her to get married, just like Valency is made to feel. Um, but like Valency Montgomery longed to have fat babies of her own and to have a husband. But of course, Valency gets a husband who loves her, who doesn't have these uh, mental health 
challenges that Montgomery had to deal with. So there's all kinds of ways that she, yeah, she transforms these challenges through her, her writing. And I love like with uh, Roaring Abel, um, she's able to kind of some of those, um, you know, tensions in the community and the hypocrisy of some Christians, she's able to kind of voice those, but put them in kind of this, you know, so-called reprobate character. So it's not the narrator speaking, it's not Montgomery, it's not Valency, but she still gets those message across. So she's able to kind of air some of her frustrations. Yeah, so I feel like Montgomery is one of those authors that will take you to some really dark places, but she always pulls you back to Mm -hmm. where it's safe. That's right. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's so important um, in terms of transforming what's happening in her life, because I don't think she always had that safe place in her life, Mm -hmm. although often, not always, but often her writing was that safe place. But, you know, that that wasn't that wasn't always true. Um, And of course, a really important part of the context, of course, is her visit in 1922 to Bala in the Muskoka region of Ontario, where the Blue Castle is set. Right. So she did get to experience Valency's landscape. And it is the only novel, of course, not set in PEI, but there's still the island, which is very important in the Blue Castle. And there's a great description um, of when Montgomery wrote to her longtime pen pal, George McMillan in Scotland, describing like looking out on the beautiful Muskoka landscape and imagining a party where she could gather like those who were distant, like McMillan, those who were departed, like Fred Campbell, who I mentioned died in the Spanish flu, and they could all be there. And she could even dance, you know, as a minister's wife, she couldn't dance. And so it was just, she was like sitting there dreaming of, uh, yeah, of something that couldn't be, but that brought her so much joy. And it's, it's of course, the, the nature setting so important. And of course, all of that dreaming in that setting is something that she gives valency. So I have to admit, I'm really relieved to hear you say valency and not valancy, because um, I, I have settled on valency as well. I know this is a thing that's sort of debated out in the internet. And of course there is, and I'm not remembering her name, but the, the poet, right, that where, uh, who had the middle name, uh, Isabella Valency Crawford, is that right? Um, who, um, who was, as was a poet. Yes, it is. I, I wrote it down. So Isabella Valency Crawford, who was this poet who kind of struggled along in poverty and never got the recognition that she deserved. So there's an homage there. Anyway, since there is this, uh, uh, a factual per- person behind it all that might help um, determine what this feeling is. Yeah. So, how was this book received? Because it does seem to be a bit of a departure for someone like Montgomery, who, of course, was primarily known as a children's author. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's a kind of interesting because in one way, like there was the dismissal that Montgomery increasingly, um, uh, who, uh, the dismissal her work increasingly met with kind of as modernism started to rise that her work was dismissed as just for children, just for girls. It was too feminine. It was sentimental. Um, so it got those reactions, but then there was a lot of positive reactions to that her, um, her humor was praised. The emotional resonances were praised. The plot was praised, but the children aspect is interesting because you know on one hand that was a way to dismiss um the novel but of course like you're saying it didn't like fit 
what mm -hmm. we expect of children's literature of Montgomery either. And like uh, Sissy Gay being portrayed so positively as a single mother was seen as particularly problematic. Um, and, and the book was banned from Sunday school, some Sunday school libraries for children. Um, oh, so wow. there was this kind of, yeah, early uh, ban of the novel. Um, and it's interesting in terms of how, you know, the modernist critics like Morley Callahan and uh, William Arthur Deacon were kind of setting up their reputations as modernist writers by disparaging Montgomery's writing. But of course, in their own writing, they, you know, they can talk about single mothers and prostitutes and sure. you know, think, but, but I guess the expectation is that, you know, she, this is the author of Anna Green Gables. Um, children are going to want to read her books. So certain things are off limits, um, but it did sell really well. And soon her publisher was asking her for more of the same, which eventually led to uh, The Tangled Web, which is kind of considered her other adult novel. Like Mary Rubio, who, Montgomery's biographer and a critic of, of Montgomery, I know kind of thinks that that's maybe the direction she would have gone in, like if she had, had written more, which is, I mean, who knows, but it's kind of fun to speculate. Yeah. So everyone I've talked to has a different response to this question, which is um, great for audio, honestly. But uh, how do you feel about the Blue Castle? What do you respond to the most? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I I just I love the uh, the Blue Castle setting and her escape into the wilds of Muskoka, and I love how there are these two different worlds, right? And how she feels as she leaves town, she's entering into this other magical realm. And mm -hmm. Montgomery is so good at conveying that. Um, you know, like we were saying earlier, you just really you you're there with Valency, and you really feel it. There's a sense of immersion, and I think that Montgomery is so good at that because it's such an all around sensual experience right mm -hmm. like there's the colors of the sunset and the sunrises um there's a lot of auditory descriptions of silence yeah. for example um uh, valence even talks about the food they eat you know like mm -hmm. baking the salmon um you know by a campfire and and so it's this full-on um sensual experience it's magical um so i think that uh, yeah i just love that part of it i love too that barney is um is is such a well-developed character too mm -hmm. and um that we see him evolve and change through this experience with Valency in the in the in the Muskoka wild so um I love that part of it too and um yeah and I I think you know as we were saying before how Montgomery is able to transform what's going on in her own life and kind of live out this fantasy with mm -hmm. Valency um that's very appealing as well so The Blue Castle is a very, very quotable book. Do you have any favorites that you'd like to share? Yes, absolutely. Well, I had trouble uh, choosing one. Um, one, I love the description of them skating, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And I was out skating the other day outside, but, you know, in the city, and I couldn't help but think about how that's, even though I was outside and it's lovely, like it's so different from, again, that quiet and like, you know, the wild skating that, mm -hmm. that Barney and, um, and Valency get to do. But I'll, I'll read, um, I'll read one quote. Yeah. Um, so it's 
Um, so here it goes. It was amazing to be able to sit up half the night and look at the moon if you wanted to, to be late for meals if you wanted to. She who had always been rebuffed so sharply by her mother and so reproachfully by cousin Stickles if she were one minute late. Dawdle over meals as long as you wanted to. Leave your crust if you wanted to. Not come home at all for meals if you wanted to. Sit on a summer rock and paddle your bare feet in the hot sand if you wanted to. Just sit and do nothing in the beautiful silence if you wanted to. In short, do any full thing you wanted to whenever the notion took you. If that wasn't a freedom, what was? And so I love that that focuses on the freedom. And it's also really taps into Montgomery's amazing ability um, to be open to and find joy in the things that are around us, like kind mm -hmm. of just the ordinary things that, and that's, you know, I think, you know, the greatest deficit of Cousin Stickles and Valency's mother is they're just so closed off to the world that's around them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that uh, it's in the second person too, if you want it to, it's like inviting the reader in and that repetition of want it to, it kind of, we're discovering these things along with Valency. And again, it's like so multi-sensual, right? There's like meals, mm -hmm. there's like the feel of the sun warm rock. Um, so I think, yeah, it kind of like sums up what Valency's getting by the freedom of being mm -hmm. out in the um in the in in uh in the blue castle but then also um yeah i think it just gets to kind of part of montgomery's genius right of being able to evoke mm -hmm. that feeling of place and the joy and in, in the everyday and in nature so i read that montgomery was reading jane austen's emma while she was writing the blue castle is that is that correct and then also um she was a big austen fan right that's right. Yeah, she did read Austin. Yeah, so I went I went looking for the Austin reference and what Elizabeth Waterston in Magic Island um, does list Emma as a book that um, that Montgomery was reading as she wrote The Blue Castle. So I think Elizabeth Waterston, we can take her, her word awesome. for that. Um, yeah, and that's so interesting because, well, um, I, I wrote, well, part of my PhD was on, was on Jane Austen and I, mm -hmm. I'm a, a great reader of Jane Austen. Um, but it's interesting, like thinking about Emma in the Blue Castle, because really Emma is like a, the polar opposite of Valency. Right. Like Valency is like insignificant, has no real control over her life. Like Emma is large and in charge. And if anything, Emma needs to learn some humility and also kind of how to fit into her community a bit better, especially as mm -hmm. it grows and changes. And there are these new middle class characters like the Coles coming to town where Valency, it's really about emancipating herself from community, right. right? So that's kind of interesting. It's so different. Um, but I think that there's interesting parallels with other Austin novels. I think that the Blue Castle's kind of Cinderella fairy tale mm -hmm. aspect certainly has parallels to Pride and Prejudice, for example. And mm -hmm. I was even thinking like how, you know, we were talking already about Barney having to grow as well as Valency, like thinking about how Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy have to grow. And that largely happens between the first and the second proposal in Pride and Prejudice, mm -hmm. marriage proposal. And then you know, that happens um, in the Blue Castle between Valency proposing and then that final confirmation later on that, yes, we're meant to be together. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that maybe the most interesting pairing with the Blue Castle, and I kind of, uh, I'm always thinking like, you know, if I were going to teach a course on Austin and Montgomery, how would I pair the novels? And mm -hmm. I think the Blue Castle and Persuasion are really nice pairings because oh. they're both about women who in their cultures are seen to be kind of past the point where they can get married, that they're kind of confirmed spinster 
sisters. Um, and both stories are about these women kind of finding new life and, um, and also kind of breaking free of, uh, of the constraints of family members, like Anne Elliot and Persuasion, her sister and father, pretty terrible. And Lady Russell means well, but gives her bad advice, right? When she breaks out with, with Frederick uh, Wentworth. So uh, yeah, so I think that, that that's an interesting um, parallel. So um, talk to me a little bit about Barney. You know, what do you think of him overall? And um, John Foster, right? Like, I'm gonna give myself up here. I think I'm the only person that was surprised by the John Foster reveal. But I yeah. love too, like the, that the John Foster, because I talked about the connections between Valency and Montgomery. But of course, um, Barney is also kind of a Montgomery character, right? Like he mm-hmm. also deals with the challenges in his life, kind of by immersing himself in nature and by, yeah. um, you know, writing through it, right? And writing mm-hmm. about nature and 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 writing in kind of a you know, maybe sentimental way, for lack of a better word, about nature in a way that resonates with how Montgomery might have described it. Um, So I I think that that's interesting, too. And also perhaps like a fantasy, I think, well, for both um, Valency and Barney, right, like of running Mm -hmm. away to the woods. Um, So, so, yeah, no, I think Barney is kind of an embedded Montgomery character is is interesting, too. Now, I will talk about this a little bit like later on in this series, but I actually did think that um, the nature sections were written by someone else. Uh, They did feel so different. So, um, yeah, I was kind of surprised that there wasn't this famous Canadian nature writer called uh, John Foster. In fact, that was Ellen Montgomery, right? (laughs) But maybe, too, it's also a way of her writing back against her critics, right? Because Mm -hmm. then she has this best-selling male writer who's doing well writing the kind of nature descriptions that she likes. So, yeah, that that she prefers. So it could be could it be a bit of a, yeah, dig at her critics. Um, I also love, too, that Barney gets to tell his story um, at the end. And, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe that's another link with persuasion, right? The fact that, you know, Wentworth writes his letter explaining himself to Anne, or even, you know, Darcy gets to, like, set Elizabeth straight, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. Wickham's version of events is not really what went down. Um, And, but Barney gets to tell his side of the story, too, because obviously Mm -hmm. Montgomery and Austin are so interested in women's um, lives and stories, but, uh, yeah, the, the men who are worthy of them get to tell their own version of their lives too. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're making me want to reread persuasion because it's been a while. Good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we are back. But before we jump into listener comments, I do want to follow up on one thing from the interview. So, Kate mentioned a Canadian poet called Isabella Valency Crawford uh, when we were discussing the pronunciation of Valency, which, by the way, guys, I I know at one point I'm just going to say Valency. And so just giving you a heads up. I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it here as we're talking about it. But um, I wanted to give you a little bit of background info on Isabella Valency Crawford, because actually she's really, really interesting. So... Crawford was born on Christmas Day, 1846 or 1850. This is like totally disputed all over the internets. Um, If anyone has any insight into this, let me know, because now I just, I really want to know. But um, 
I will say we don't know like a ton about her life. So that's why it's very hazy. We do know that she was born in Dublin, Ireland, and that her family had moved to Canada by 1857. Now, her father was a doctor and he was something of a shady figure. So they were forced to move from their first home in Paisley due to some sort of scandal regarding misappropriated funds. So it's a little little darkness there. Uh-oh. And then in 1869, she uh, moves to Peterborough. And that's when she begins to publish a, loads of poems and short stories. Like she's very, very prolific, actually. Now, tragically, her father and like her siblings as well. She had a ton of siblings. They all pass. And Crawford moves to Toronto with her mother, where she's financially supporting both of them with her work. Sadly, in her lifetime, Crawford only published one book, which is called Old Spooks's Pass, Malcolm's Katie, and Other Poems. <laughs> Quite Quite the title there. And uh, that was in 1884. And then just three years later, she passed away. So I thought it was particularly interesting to think about her alongside the Blue Castle as she is not only regarded as one of Canada's first major poets, um, she was also someone that was also known for their descriptions of nature beauty of nature, which is really going to come into play here in the later chapters of the Blue Castle. Um, But then also she had this like really short, tragic life. And I could see that really um, being something that Montgomery was very attracted to. And yeah, uh, yeah, it seems like Valency here is a little bit of a shout out. Interesting. Yeah. I will throw some of her work in the Facebook group for you guys to check out. Speaking of the Facebook page, <laughs> we have Facebook comments. Of course, well, I, we always have yeah. Facebook comments. <laughs> I kind of wish that we could just read the whole thing because it was an amazing discussion, but I was forced to pull out just a few. Just a few. So I'm going to start with Mary P., uh, who talks about Val- about Valency's state of mind at the beginning of the book. She says, it's a brilliant portrait of clinical depression. Mm-hmm. When you're depressed, it's so easy to feel as if you have no way out of your situation or to fixate on the only solution that has not worked out for Valency, that's marriage. And she thinks that it's a brilliant portrait of how little things like not being allowed to alter your own room can be so depressing day after day. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, the room. (laughs) And then this um, comment from Larissa V, totally like, as soon as she wrote it, I was like, oh, of course. But I, I mm-hmm. didn't think of it at all when I was reading. She says, my theory might not pan out, but Valency's symptoms of heart palpitations, dizziness, and shortness of breath sound so much like anxiety or panic attacks. Yeah, yes. totally. Um, and then Valerie O says that she read this at first as a teenager and felt as immediately connected to Valency, which I thought was cool at the time, but is kind of concerning now. <laughs> But it's true. And it Anna, makes sense. It though, does, in it the, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I get it. And Anna B responded that there's a sense of the teenage experience here, even though she's 29. Mm-hmm. That her life is so restricted. And although I hope no one here experienced that level of restriction, like having to write down those wasted minutes in a special black book, she is stuck between child and adult. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was thinking I totally felt connected with 
with Valency when I was reading this, even though the actual circumstances have nothing to do with my life. Right. <laughs> no, no, you know, I've not experienced anything exactly like her, where she is in the plot, but that feeling of like restriction of having to like shrink yourself, um, but chafing at that. I felt that that was super um, relatable. And when I think about it, it's um, even though I sometimes feel that way now, it's, it is to do with, uh, with patterns and experiences that started in teenagerhood, mm-hmm. right? I still feel connected with her, right? I still feel like a valency at times, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's because of the kinds of experiences I started having as a teenager, trying to like, you know, decide what my adult self is going to be. And then chafing mm-hmm. against all the people who keep telling the same story about the raspberry jam that you once stole right. when you were five. Right. <laughs> and like, can those people reshape their ideas of you? Right. Yeah. That's a big question. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I I don't know if anyone has the answer, but if they do write into bonnet to Donna gmail.com. Yes. 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 Well, and I think it's, I think it's one of the things that feels really dysfunctional about the family is that, is that they, um, they are not interested in Valency as a person. Yeah. They're only interested in what they've told her she is. Um, mm-hmm. And while that's, you know, it's it's unpleasant from uncles and aunts and cousins, it's really tragic from her mother, right? Is yeah. that her mother from that early age of seven when she brought that problem to her and the mother just had no sympathy, um, the mother's just never been interested in mm-hmm. in in sort of nurturing Valency's identity as a separate person. Um, Courtney B in the Facebook group um, highlights that, that part where Valency claims that the greatest happiness is to sneeze when you want to. I love mm-hmm. that. Great quote. She says, Courtney says, it is a simple common thing that she's been bothered over for so long and you love to see her strike out at the family. Even if you might also get a little embarrassed by the whole ordeal, especially by her family. The Sterling clan has every kind of boundary issue. Mm -hmm. Every time Valency has previously tried to create her own boundaries, she's attacked. So it's no wonder that she failed to establish good friendships when she was younger. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we've got some very emotionally mature and um, insightful people in the group. And I love it. I know. Right. (laughs) These are all things I have discussed in therapy, by the way. (laughs) boundary issues yes Yes. yeah and then um joy a um brought up some interesting parallels does Mm -hmm. valency's blue castle make anyone else think of gondol and angria the fictional worlds that the bronte siblings created as their own sort of personal personal fantasy world um she says she goes on valency's tendency to live in her blue castle while it helps her to get by may also be distracting her from forming a real life for herself. Yeah. 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 Another and, thing I've brought up in therapy, guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um. yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, I love the glimpses we see of the Blue Castle. It's like, mm-hmm. it feels like the moment that we enter Valency's life is the moment when she stops being able or, or interested in spending a lot of time in that fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like we hear about it more than we see her actually, you know, using it to cope. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. We, yeah. What I thought was really interesting is that, is that we hear that she used to, that, that around her family, she's frequently kind of 
not she's they they consider her dull they consider Mm -hmm. her not very talkative and we hear that that's because she used to go to her blue castle she used to go to her happy place right to avoid this uh that all of the the predictable um comments and jokes that she'd hear um but we don't we don't actually see an event at which she says okay go into the blue castle now and you know what i would have to say that would be one of my biggest criticisms of the book Mm. because i Mm -hmm. would love to especially if we which we will talk in future about in future episodes if we do get to see some sort of visual adaptation of this book mm-hmm. um, on yes. TV or in a film, that would be great yes. to see. Oh, I would yeah. love to see how she copes with this family okay, by escaping yeah. into the Blue Castle. And then you see it lessen as her yeah. life becomes fuller mm-hmm. and more rich. Love yes. it. Oh, I love that. Um, see, I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing the opening being the opening of whatever this series is. Yeah. Is okay. It's like a Maxfield Parish painting. <laughs> or even more, it's like the Nestle white chocolate commercial from the 80s. Yes. It's <laughs> like very Maxfield Parish inspired. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's there's like, you know, rich clouds in, in, in oranges and purples. There's like white draperies as she swings on a swing. Yeah. You know, there's there's some blow dried hair. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. And yeah. That's, that, that somehow that's rudely erupted. And then she's in the like the dowdy clothes in the mm-hmm. in the, the the threadbare house. I love it. I yeah. do also want to highlight. Um, so Joy A brought up um, the parallel with the fantasy worlds from the Brontes. Rachel P responded that she was thinking of Anne in Anna Green Gables creating friends for herself when she was in these friendless foster homes and in the mm-hmm. orphanage and they became so real to her, she almost regretted leaving them behind. Uh, Rachel says, imagination saved both little girls, I think. I don't think any of the family even remotely considered pleasure except as sin. And by the time we meet Valency, it is only because of her imagination that she knows that anything else exists. Yeah. Yeah. I. You know, what's interesting about that, too, and I'm glad Rachel brought that up, is because I feel like, I mean, obviously, it's it's not just a Valency thing. It's definitely also an Anne thing. Mm-hmm. It's an Ellen Montgomery thing. Mm. I think, really, if we're thinking about yeah. some of the, how hard Ellen Montgomery's life was yeah. and this sort of escape into literature and mm-hmm. I wonder about her own blue castle what was yes. going on in there mm-hmm. um but it also feels like that's an ongoing thing for so many of the writers that we cover right like mm-hmm. obviously the brontes same situation mm-hmm. have these very mm-hmm. difficult lives i feel like Louisa May Alcott, did you have a blue castle? That would be, I'm sure you did. You know, like I feel like so many of these writers use their (laughs) imagination to escape. Not everyone put it on the page so bluntly. It does feel like it's an apprenticeship though, right? That it's Mm -hmm. like having this fantasy life is, is, um, makes writing, um, makes, makes it possible to write something different than you experience maybe. Yeah. Right. Or at least it's your apprenticeship that, uh, that helps shape your ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I think about uh, what little I know about, about Ellen Montgomery's own life and how, and how honestly, how little of that, that suffering she injects into the Anne books, at least the early ones. Right. It's like mm-hmm. those, unless I'm just looking at it from my childhood eyes, um, the Anne books have so much love and nostalgia. Mm-hmm. They're very, there's so much, there's not just humor, but like a warm humor. 
Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Valentina has a fantastic sense of humor, despite the lack of warmth of her family right. and the lack of response to it when she lets it loose. Um, but it, with Anne, it's 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 even those even those those hard times for Anne are sort of this nostalgic glow of mm-hmm. of um, Princess of Rhode Island of of a time period that is a little bit distant when LM is actually writing the mm-hmm. books. Um, and it feels, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel like utter fantasy. It's tied to yeah. a real place and a real and a reality, but it doesn't sound much like what Ella Montgomery herself experienced about childhood. Right. Totally. She has found that like balance that works mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the and books, especially the early ones. Mm-hmm. Now we'll talk later on in the series about like has she found the balance here when we get to the Ooh, yeah. blue castle. Yeah. Um I'm undecided. Mm, mm-hmm. But I think when you kind of think about what she was going through in her own life, it's mm-hmm. it's like it may it makes sense to me mm-hmm. at least. It ha- yeah. Overall it has way I think it has more highs and lows than the Anne books, right? Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, the question of does it does it end up balancing between those that's open. Yeah. O- open question. Think about it. You know, let us know in the comments for the episode, actually, what you yeah. think. And I'm curious if anyone did read it when they were a lot younger, right? Were mm-hmm. you, did you read it after you read the Anne books? And how did you, how did you, what did you think about a 29 year old character mm-hmm. at that point? And did you, could you connect with Valency? Yeah, I am too. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see here. Hannah usually does this part. You can do it if you like. If you'd like to oh. say where you can find us on the social medias, I can set you up for that. Um, I, I don't know if I can do it without Hannah's totally special fine. touch. I, um, you, I, let me see if I can remember how it goes. Uh, you can email us at bonnets, bonnets at bonnets at dawn. Yeah, it's a true story. Okay. At bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can follow us on Instagram. Mm-hmm. at Bonatatan. And you can find our Facebook group on Facebook. It's also called Bonatatan. And that, I believe, I know that there's also a Twitter account, mm-hmm. Bonatatan. Um, I feel like the Facebook group is where the amazing action is. Do not miss yeah, yeah. these amazing read-along threads. Do yeah. not miss the discussion. I mean, Facebook is a hard place to have amazing discussions. This right. group has them every day. Yes. It's all yeah, I, it's it's the best group on Facebook. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it you really say that. It really is. People really like come and connect there. Like people yeah. there are like friends. They they mm-hmm. now they're like pen pals, but hopefully yeah. they will hang out in real life once we can do that. One day, one day. Yeah, if yeah. you if you are t- like uh, tired of the kind of the the Facebook groups that are kind of have the same sort of discussions every day, sort of the same kind of like, you know, drama come to Bonnet Sedan Facebook group. It's like yeah. real conversations. Opinions are shared. People disagree and they don't get mad. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. You are amazing, everybody.